Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Uh, thank you for the good reports we hear from Tanisha and the hope that she has to go forward in a missions trip and the next phases of her career. We thank you for that. We thank you for the work you're doing in many hearts in this congregation. And we pray, Lord, that you would uh, even bring new converts into our congregation that we can grow together with and celebrate our salvation with. And Lord, as we listen to your word being preached this morning, may you speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as you see up on the... uh, Screen there, the title of the message this morning, A New Way of Living. Subtitle is uh, Fasting, Mending, and Filling. Uh, And as we go through our passage for this morning, we're going to look at three things uh, to avoid. Um, The three things to avoid are fasting for the wrong reasons, mending with the wrong material, and filling the wrong vessel. And so we're going to be looking at that momentarily. Um, as we uh, go through this passage together. Um, So as we uh, looked at last week, we were in the passage that talked about the calling of Levi, and Jesus loves saving sinners, and often the very worst sinners are the ones that Jesus is delighted to save. That's good news. And we saw that after Jesus called him, Levi, also known as who? Matthew, uh, has this big party, and Jesus was there. So I want to read the passage, and we're going to go back to where we were last week and then move forward so that you can remember, and if you weren't here, you'll get more context of this story. So we're going to go back to verse 27 and then work our way to the end of the chapter. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and, other, and others reclining at the table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat with and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good." So, um, hold on a second here. Sorry, lost my spot. Um, Technology, it's going good. Okay. Um, So, last week as we went to verse 32, 
we saw a complaint against Jesus. The complaint was that he was eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. This was guilt by association. The Pharisees thought that by separating themselves from sinners, they would have some merit before God. Look at us. We're staying away from those bad people, so we get some merit there. They felt that if they avoided undesirable people, then God would notice and appreciate their physical separation from those types of people. And Jesus pointed out that his mission was to call sinners to repentance, not righteous people. Or perhaps we should say those who think they are righteous. After all, if they consider themselves righteous, they will never see their need for a redeemer, a savior, a sin bearer, a substitute. So if you missed last week's sermon, I would encourage you, go find it on the website or on the podcast. And this morning we're going to see further complaints that were brought against Jesus. Now, you would think they maybe would have quit while they were ahead after Jesus very easily answered their previous objection. But here they are with an additional objection. So again, three things we're going to look to avoid. Fasting for the wrong reasons, mending with the wrong material, and filling the wrong vessel. And so uh, let's go back to verse 33 for a moment. And uh, it says, They said to him, The disciples of John fast and off, they fast often and offer prayers. Uh, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but you, yours, eat and drink. So here's the complaint, right? Um, that... John's disciples and the Pharisees, they're, they're like very devout in their fasting and their regular prayers during the day, but they're accusing Jesus and saying, your disciples don't do that. Let's start for a moment with the disciples of John and talk about them. This is John the Baptist. Uh, now, Jesus, in this answer, by the way, he never says John's disciples should not have been fasting. He's not, he doesn't say, well, they shouldn't be in the first place or anything like that. So let's be clear about that right away. <clears throat> Jesus in no way condemns fa fasting in general, nor does he prohibit the practice of fasting. However, it is important to understand when and why fasting was appropriate. In the Old Testament covenant, fasting was only required one day a year, and that was the Day of Atonement. And that type of fasting was a sort of fasting of sorrow over sin, a fasting of repentance, an appeal to God to accept the sacrifice of the atonement on behalf of the people. But other than on the day of atonement, no fasting was required of the people of Israel. But they could fast um, beyond the, the fasting on the day of atonement. Um, but it was of their own uh, desires or their own freedom to do so. So they might fast in a time of personal repentance. Maybe they committed some personal sin. A person would say, I am so sad about the, what I've done, I'm going to fast just to uh, make a sign of my repentance. Or they may fast because for some people that helps them to draw close to God. They, they take some time where they're not focused on finding food or cooking food or preparing food and um, and some people say that when, you do, when you're fasting, your mind becomes more alert, and that's true for some people. 
Um, so people will do it for that reason. Sometimes people will fast when there's uh, a bad tragedy, such as a death in the family. And uh, sometimes that fasting is just, I'm not hungry. But there's different reasons that people would fast. Now, sadly, I've heard Christians say that they're fasting. Uh, they, they're hoping that as they fast that they'll lose some weight as a result. And, and the focus seems less on some devotion or dedication to the Lord and more as a secondary reason to try and lose some weight. And now, if you are fasting as part of a weight loss plan, I don't see anything wrong with that necessarily. You hear this people talking about intermittent fasting all the time. That's fine. But don't go around telling people you're fasting and praying if the real reason is weight loss. Don't confuse with what you're doing for yourself with worship. Remember who John the Baptist was and how he lived. He was what we would call an ascetic. An ascetic is a person who uh, lives in a way where uh, they're very deprived and they're voluntarily doing that. His living conditions were very frugal. You may think of his diet of locusts and honey and say, I'd rather fast than eat bugs. <laughs> but John did live in the wilderness and he wore rough clothing and he was eating meager food. That's what ascetics do. There's been people through all of history that do some sort of religious asceticism uh, not just Christians, by the way. There's other religions that do asceticism. So it's no big surprise that John's disciples also fasted. Um, and let us remember what John's ministry of baptism was all about. It was a baptism of repentance. And a sign of true repentance is sometimes fasting. Again, the Old Testament only demanded one fast per year on the Day of Atonement, and people had the freedom to fast on their own if they wanted to. There is law, and there is freedom. Fasting required on the Day of Atonement, and freedom given to fast at other times as a person saw fit, and that was keeping in step with their own practice of their faith and righteousness, um, but it was never required beyond the day of uh, atonement. And fasting also is not meritorious, not in the Old Testament nor in the apostolic age. The idea that if you fasted, you would somehow get more forgiveness or more love from God or more mercy is unfounded. You cannot find anywhere in Scripture where the Bible teaches that fasting grants any spiritual merit to the person as far as like they get more from God and his gifts or something like that. But the Pharisees had made fasting twice a week part of their religious exercise. They fasted two days every week, as they did with many as other aspects of the law, and we've talked about that the last few weeks. They added to it. And for many, this was too great a burden to bear. So fasting twice a week, and then added to that, they had specific prayer times uh, several times per the day that they, they said, this is, you have to pray at this time. Um, and all of these things are extra biblical. Extra biblical means something that comes from outside the Bible. If I were to tell you that in order for you to be a good believer, 
you had to shake the hands of 15 people before you left the building this morning. That would be extra biblical. Okay, We can't point to scripture where it says, therefore, every Christian must uh, shake 15 hands before they leave the building. That's extra biblical. And extra biblical is also legalistic. So people throw around the word legalistic sometimes in the church as a pejorative or as an insult. Uh, now, let me attempt to make clear to you what legalistic means and what it doesn't mean. You may be using the word in the wrong way because many Christians use this word in the wrong way, and many people have been taught to use it in the wrong way. So let's say that you have someone in your church, and they're always very concerned about living the right way according to Scripture and who also concerns themselves with their fellow believers and how they're living. So this person is always looking to the Bible and always trying to see, am I missing the mark? And perhaps in the process they speak to other believers about things they have observed and that they believe are wrong because Scripture teaches us this and this is not how we're living. An example of this might be of a person's concern that he sees a husband in the church being disrespectful to his wife. And in public, this husband makes rude comments, puts his wife down. So our concerned person pulls the husband aside, shows him scripture, and says, you need to treat your wife right. Is this legalistic? No. No, not at all. Now, people do not generally like to be corrected, but this husband may very well scoff and say, oh, you're being legalistic. Who are you? Right? But if, if the person was speaking truthfully, and if he was humble enough to hear and receive correction, he would have to acknowledge that the person that's telling him about his behavior cares about him, and that they are rightly showing him by Scripture that he's wrong. It is not legalistic to try to be biblical. However, it is legalistic to expect others to follow rules for righteousness or rules of the church that are not from the Bible. And there are many examples of this. I got chewed out once in the small town we were in because we had a visiting missionary and I hadn't called the tiny local newspaper to tell them we were having a guest speaker. In the mind of the complainer, I had broken a cardinal rule, an unwritten cardinal rule, a rule that no one had told me about ahead of time, because if they had, maybe I would have done it. But he, you were supposed to, in that church, if there was a guest speaker, you were supposed to call the local newspaper to make sure that they put it in. I mean, this is a newspaper with a distribution of who knows what. You don't want to go work for them, Tanisha. It's too small. Go big. Anyway. But uh, I, I was confronted on this, and that is just plain out legalism, right? Now, if you could point to a chapter and verse of Scripture that told me I was supposed to do that, or even if the words were not in Scripture, but there was some clear teaching that let me know that I was supposed to do that, that'd be one thing. But this was simply a matter of opinion on how things ought to be done in that case. Pure legalism. So we must always be asking ourselves, if we feel very strongly about how something ought to be done in our home, in the church, in the government, 
even if it's a tradition, we should ask ourselves, why do we feel so strongly about it? Is it because that is the way we always did it and I have grown comfortable with it? Or is it because this is the way the Bible teaches us it should be done? Some people bristle when a church leader says, you really should attend church regularly. Is that legalistic? No. Because Scripture teaches Christians to meet together regularly as a church family. Hebrews 10 tells us this. Let us hold fast the confession of our faith. I'm sorry, the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, as much as I am happy to have technology to stream our service, and we understand this is helpful for people who are shut in for different reasons, it is a concern of me and a concern of many pastors that the live stream has replaced worshiping together for many people who are not shut-ins. We want to worship with you in person as much as possible. Is it legalistic for me to say this? No, it's biblical. That's the difference. But if I were to say, when you do come here, you must wear tie and shiny black shoes to come in, well, you certainly won't find a scripture telling you this, so you would know that is legalism. And I don't wear black shiny shoes or a tie, so... I would be kicked out too. Now, I know it took a long time to get through all that, but it's important for us to understand what real legalism is and what being biblical is. And being biblical is not legalism. So the Pharisees had created many rules that went way above and way beyond what God himself required. And when others did not obey these rules, it made them angry. So they asked the the disciples of Jesus why they did not honor this practice. Now, it's interesting to note that the Pharisees hated John and his followers. But in this case, they were not too proud to use the compare and contrast to try to put the, they're kind of pitting the disciples of John against the followers of Jesus. Um, But Jesus answers by showing categories. Two categories are the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees in one category and the disciples of Jesus and the others. So Jesus says in verse 34, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? For the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So weddings then, as today, were big events. They were often a week-long celebration. Instead of a couple going off on a honeymoon to some exotic destination the couple would stay home and be served by their friends, treated like royalty for their first week together. The special friends of theirs had the honor of serving them during the week of celebration. So Kent Hughes writes this. He says, Jesus answered those who criticized the eating, drinking, and joyous demeanor of his disciples by asking, can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? The explanation was divinely bold and packed with meaning for his Jewish listeners. A newly married Jewish couple did not honeymoon, but stayed home for a week-long open house, during which there was continual feasting and celebrating. The bride and groom were treated like king and queen that week, 
Sometimes they even wore crowns. They were attended by chosen friends known as guests of the bridegroom, which means literally sons of the bridal chamber. These wedding guests were exempted from all fasting through a rabbinical ruling that said, all in attendance on the bridegroom are relieved of all religious observances which would lessen their joy. Jesus asserted that his presence justified a feast and that his followers had the joyous privilege of a perpetual wedding party. In such exalted circumstances, it is wrong, if not downright impossible, to mourn. Jesus' disciples experienced temporarily, temporary unhappiness when they saw their own sin or failed him, but being in the presence of Jesus brought them relentless joy. Jesus always brought joy to whatever place he was at, at least for those that received him. But Jesus notes that the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away and then they will fast. So Jesus is the bridegroom in this illustration. His followers are the wedding guests. He cannot expect his followers to be fasting, which represents sorrow over sin or repentance or an appeal to God for mercy, but rather he knows that for them, this time, the time when he was there with them, was a time for joy. But he clearly alludes to a time when he is going to be leaving. Certainly when he was on the cross and in the tomb, there were times of sorrow for his followers. And these were times appropriate for fasting. But while he was present both physically and spiritually, this was not the time to fast. Now, what does this mean about fasting for believers here and now? Well, let us summarize what the Bible teaches about fasting in the apostolic age and in the church today. First, there's no scripture anywhere that says a Christian must fast. Second, nothing in scripture tells us that fasting helps us to secure our salvation or that fasting is a sign of Christian maturity or some badge of honor or that you become part of an elite club when you fast. If another believer demands that you fast, that is not warranted by scripture. However, Jesus does mention fasting in his Sermon on the Mount. He says this in Matthew 6, when you fast, see, notice he said when, not if. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So if you do fast, don't brag about it. Don't make a big deal about it. Don't even let others know you're fasting. Don't do it perhaps when you know you're expected to have some meal with colleagues and friends so that you can sit down in that restaurant at the dinner table and only say, only water for me, thank you. Don't fast as though it's a competition or a survival contest. Don't try to fast as Jesus did in the desert with no food or water for 40 days. You aren't Jesus. So scripture contains warnings about fasting. You should have the right attitude and the right actions to go along with fasting if you do it. Even though fasting is not required of believers, there may be a time for you to fast. Perhaps you really messed up and in your sorrow over your sin, you decide, I'm going to fast so I can get refocused on my relationship with God. That's a good reason for fasting. 
In this case, perhaps you're, you increase your intensity of Bible study and prayer while you choose not to eat. This might be appropriate time of fasting. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You notice there, it doesn't say, if we fast, if we confess, he's faithful and just to forgive us. However, in your sorrow for your sin, you may decide that that's appropriate for you. So confess your sins first. And then if you feel it will be helpful for you to refocus your life and actions, then fasting can be done. There's no compulsion, but there's freedom if you want to. But the fasting will not bring forgiveness. Only pure confession, pure repentance brings forgiveness. You must always remember that fasting is not so that you earn merit or points towards God's mercy and grace. Those are freely given by him. In church history, there have been times when the church as a whole fasted and prayed. Sometimes when great persecution was going on, they would do this. While brothers and sisters in the Lord were being brought into the Colosseum or into other horrific forms of torture, the church would fast and pray intensely for them. And I believe that that's part of the reason that God sustains those people through that, because the church is praying for them. How do people go to their death with looking like an angel? The church was praying for them. Fasting is neither required nor prohibited by Scripture for the believer. It's a matter of freedom. After making his point about why his disciples are not fasting during that time, Jesus now uses a few illustrations. Patching a new garment, putting wine into new wineskins, and preference for the old over the new. Verse 36. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he tears the new. He will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. This may seem less obvious to us today, because many people have never even patched a garment in our world today. And some who have, because our materials are so much better in their consistency and quality, you may not have had this happen. But if you use certain materials, such as cotton or wool especially, you know that if the cloth is new and has never been washed or processed before, then once you do wash it, what happens? The material shrinks. In those days, if you had an older garment that you'd worn for some time, it had already shrunk to all the point. It's not going to shrink anymore. There's a point where it's not going to shrink anymore. But if you took a brand new piece of cloth to mend a tear, then as soon as you wash those clothes, the new cloth would shrink while the old cloth would retain its already shrunken state. And the result of this would be a ripping effect that would make the mended spot look worse than before. And not only that, but a new piece of cloth would never match the original material. They did not have the consistency of dyes and colors that our clothes have. So the patched spot would be very obvious, even drawing attention to it. And then in verse 37, he says, No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will, be burst, will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. So again, in those days, something different than today. Uh, today, wine comes in bottles or boxes, I guess. But um, in those days, animal skins were used to hold the wine. Um, and wine ferments. So when it was new, it would be put into fresh skins because they still had some elasticity. They could stretch a bit. But eventually, animal skins get brittle and they cannot stretch. 
So putting unfermented wine into an old wineskin would end in disaster as the wine and the wineskin both would be destroyed. So these illustrations, the patching of garments and the filling of wineskins, are not specifically explained to us in Scripture. So we're left to work out on our own exactly how to apply them. Some have said that the old cloth and the old wineskins represent the fact that the disciples of Jesus are weak because of the system of the law that they have structured their lives around. And so to receive the new covenant in Jesus, they had to be made new as well and receive a new structure to put in place this new gift of life. So the Holy Spirit works in the lives of believers to make them new cloths that can be patched or new wineskins that can accept the new wine. Some have said that the old refers more specifically to the Pharisaical laws. The freedom Christ offers cannot be maintained within their strict legalism. We may see sometimes in the modern church something similar. Uh, The church develops over time certain traditions. Even local churches have different little traditions they do week after week. And those inside have grown very comfortable with those traditions. But someone may be saved who didn't grow up in that system, and now they know Christ, and the church hits them over the head with man-made traditions. The old wineskin may then be a church that has seen no innovation or change in decades being disrupted by new believers who in their excitement over their new faith disrupt the church with new ways to do things, new ideas for ministries, and sometimes rejecting certain of the old ways of thinking that were tradition but not biblical necessarily. Now this is a problem uh, if new believers insist on something that is not biblical we, we can't abide that, right? But usually the clash is not over what is biblical, but what is traditional. And there are several ways you can interpret these illustrations Jesus is giving, but let's remember the context. What was the context of it? Jesus is addressing a complaint about fasting. Jesus is not about to let the joy of his presence be interfered with by demanding his disciples fast. Fasting, especially the way the Pharisees did it, was the old wineskin. And the joy of Christ was bursting the old wineskin apart. No, to receive the ministry of Christ and try to fit it into that old wineskin was just not going to work. So the hearts of those who would receive Christ must be remade so that they can contain the blessings of life. So I'm thankful that for believers, God has given his Holy Spirit to regenerate us and make us fit to contain what he provides to us. He does not leave us as old wineskins and then in verse 39 as we close the chapter it says no one after drinking old wine desires new for he says the old is good so refusing to consider the new because we love the same the old so much now i know i'm gonna strike some hearts with this you have a favorite meal at some restaurant that you love And when you go to that restaurant, you never order anything but that. Because if you're like me, I know that's really good, and that's my very favorite. If I order and try something new, it just may not be as good. So it used to be a family joke when we went out to dinner, and my dad would say, Judy, what was that thing I liked here? (laughs) And, And we'd try to remember what it was. But we all do that to an extent, whether it be another pattern or a certain food we liked. And then what happens if you're, they, the worst thing is when they take your favorite off the menu. 
right? You've been there. Now I can never enjoy this restaurant again. But that's the, that's the wrong attitude, isn't it? What if, what if we said, well, maybe there's some new exciting thing that I can try now that I've, now I've got that old thing out of the way. It's time to try something new. But that's a typical thing. We get comfortable with something that we're used to. We can't enjoy that we'll ever, uh, we can't imagine we'll ever enjoy something else. And so uh, we might refuse to try something new. And that's what Jesus is saying here. There are some people that even after he displays his power and his grace and his authority in the new covenant, there will be still people who are so stuck with the old that that's what they're going to stick with. So three things to avoid were fasting for the wrong reasons, mending with the wrong material, and filling the wrong vessel. I want to close with a quote from uh, John Corson, he had this uh, a great uh, application to this passage, I think, um, which the idea of it is if we could be like the disciples of Jesus who think of themselves as being at a wedding feast because we're in the joy of the Lord, think of the impact that'll make. We just ended our Sunday school class kind of talking about that. How does being in Christ and having the hope for the future that we have help us to be more palatable to the people around us. So John Corson says this, I suggest Jesus' answer speaks not only of his crucifixion prophetically, but of his place in our lives presently. A person who truly senses the presence of Jesus in his life will celebrate life as Jesus did. What about us? Have we lost sight of the fact that Jesus Christ came to bring us life and life abundantly to let us experience real celebration? Would we be invited to a neighborhood function readily? Do our coworkers include us when they get together or is there something about us so pharisaical that they conveniently forget to invite us? Jesus was included in all kinds of parties. The common people embraced him easily and loved to be around him constantly. Why? Because he brought a higher degree of joy to wherever he went. And John Corson continues, I pray not only that we might be able to penetrate the parties of our society, that people would feel free to include us in their celebrations, but that we might do what Jesus did, For although he came to people as they were, he left them different than he found them. If you find the party or the people affecting you rather than you affecting them, watch out. But if, like Jesus, you can go into a place and make a difference by your joy and the unmistakable reality of God's work in your life, then go with God's blessing. Acts 8 tells us that the early church was so full of joy that they caused the entire city of Samaria to be full of joy as well. Celebrate your salvation, gang, as you infiltrate your situation. Realize that Jesus can handle your humanity, that he would rather see you a friend of sinners than a self-righteous Pharisee. Then go on to make a difference in your community, end quote. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this message.